0: The MacroFab Engineering Podcast. I'm your guest David Gunnis,
1: and we are your hosts Parker Dolman and Stephen Craig. This is episode 203. David Gunnis is the Vice President of R
2: and at Fulcrum Acoustic. He also led the leads the product. He is also the lead product designer, <laughs> photographer, copywriter, ambassador to Italy facilities maintenance director director of calculus technical writer
1: and the lead coffee maker so is that a self like did you give yourself the title of lead coffee maker or do you just make coffee that while at work that people just defer it to you
0: i don't think it really matters if i gave it to myself nobody objected to it because it was the truth
2: (laughs) (laughs) well done so uh Fulcrum Acoustic, well, first of all, thanks for coming on the podcast. Uh, Yes, thank you, David,
1: for coming on to our podcast. Thanks for having me.
2: So, uh, yeah, let's talk about uh, Fulcrum Acoustic real quick. Um, Would you mind just giving us a rundown of uh, what they are and what they do? Quick bio. Uh,
0: The Fulcrum Acoustic uh, was started in February of 2008. So we're coming up on uh, 12 years. Um, For those of you who remember 2008, it was not the ideal time to start a new company as the, uh, the market was crashing at the same time that we were starting up. But uh, you know, we'd use a conservative enough approach that we didn't have any problems with, with uh, the economic realities of the time. And, and all it really did was it meant that our, our original business plan ran at about 50% of the projected speed. And eventually we, we got to where we needed to be with, with a minimum of risk. And uh, and so here we are now, 12 years later, and, and uh, still healthy and and happening. Um, everybody involved with Fulcrum is uh, was veterans of the pro audio, pro loudspeaker industry, so there weren't very many surprises with regard to that. And the only real surprises were the differences between working for established companies and and uh, working for a a uh, a small bootstrapped startup company that's a different set of challenges
2: and at fulcrum uh, you manufacture loudspeaker uh, a variety of loudspeaker products right
0: yeah um everything that everything we do would be characterized as professional so we don't sell anything into the consumer market our our customers are uh contractors uh touring sound companies um in some cases, we sell direct to a an end customer in the form of uh, theme parks, and in some cases, uh, churches, especially churches that are um, essentially a, a chain of churches. So they'll uh, talk directly to manufacturers and, and design uh, sound systems that they put in a, a number of different venues. Uh, but uh, the one thing in common is that all of these people are people who make their living doing sound so they can afford, uh, a product that's built in the USA for one thing.
2: So, so like, uh, like stadium acoustics and line arrays and things of that sort, right?
0: Yeah. In terms of applications, our, our, our biggest applications are, uh, sports facilities like stadiums and arenas, uh, churches is probably the biggest, everything from you know, local small town churches with two speakers in the front to, uh, you know, 15,000 seat churches that, uh, you know that that broadcast every every service um, and everything in between. We do uh, lots of nightclubs, uh, performing art centers, uh, restaurants, and clubs in general that uh, you know other other than say dance clubs. Dance club is uh, that's one of our our best applications because they they use an insane number of speakers. We like those kinds of customers.
1: <laughs> so I got I got a question for someone who's not in the audio world: Is what's the major difference between like a professional grade loudspeaker box versus something that you go pick up at uh, Best Buy, consumer market?
0: Yeah. Well, probably the 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 primary well, there's they're getting very loud is is the uh, the net result. But you know, a typical thing you'd pick up at uh, at Best Buy maybe label 100 watts, and it's really you know, 30 watt power handling. Um, the uh, the products we sell are typically anywhere from 600 to 4,000 watt, and it's real power handling. Um, the sensitivity is also much higher. So our typical sensitivities range from 98 to 112 dB,
1: whereas that's the sensitivity of the speaker. Given what? Like the power you give it?
0: Yeah, one watt to the speaker with a microphone one, one meter away, uh, you'll get 98 to 112 dB. Whereas there's probably nothing in a Best Buy that is more than 88 dB sensitivity. So, you know, Yeah, I was about dB. to say,
2: I've got, a, I've got a four by 12 speaker, guitar speaker cabinet sitting right here, and there's no way it has that kind of sensitivity on
0: it. That's probably pretty good, though. Guitar speakers are, are professional loudspeakers, yeah. typically. So that they probably have a 96 to 98 dB sensitivity, and you put four of them, four of them together, you, you've got uh, more like you know 100 and 304. So.
2: Well, I, I can I can very easily put out 110 115 decibels. Yeah. That's for sure. Yeah. But in terms of the sensitivity, I'm not entirely sure on. So actually, things.
0: guitar speakers are are uh, quite often made by the same suppliers that that make uh, professional cone speakers for some of the boxes that that uh, that we build.
2: Oh, very cool. So, so one, uh, one question before we kind of get into the technology side of things um, that has, has I've been curious about for a while is how does one get into the, uh, I guess, the academic side of sound design in terms of how, how does, um, I guess, let me put it this way. What, what does somebody need to study in order to be able to design a loudspeaker or design an enclosure for a loudspeaker?
0: Well, you can come from a lot of different directions. Um, most most loudspeaker designers started out as electrical engineers, uh, primarily because electrical engineering puts a lot of emphasis on Fourier theory, and everything you do in audio in general, but especially in loudspeakers, is is frequency dependent. It's like every single um, measure of loudspeaker performance varies with frequency, so that. Uh, you know the focus on on frequency responses kind of leads to electrical engineers. There's quite a number of prominent loudspeaker designers who came out of mechanical engineering and they tend to approach it in a in a different way um, which is kind of interesting um and then there are people who uh who just come from uh, very typically the live sound industry and they're they're more intuitive and uh Cut and try, but it is possible to actually uh, build a loudspeaker without having any real engineering background, and just listen to it and go, well, that that's not right. Um, I'll try something else now. And a lot of good loudspeakers have you know have been made that way. That's that's how sound companies did it in the 70s and and early 80s. Is you know they would they would build something and take it out to the first gig and blow it up, and then they'd go back and try something else. And after you know, after a while they had something that they that they uh had faith in. Um, but it's a long, arduous process and you know, beginning in the late eighties, early nineties, um, that kind of went away and sound companies started relying on manufacturers to apply real engineering to the designs of the loudspeakers and, and make something that was more reliable and and somebody who could, you know, fill your warranty claim when you blew it up. <laughs>
2: Right, instead of just uh, empirical, iterative design, actually calculating something.
0: Yeah, there's still there's still a lot of empiricism in it, even even when you have uh, you know very technical oriented uh, designers. But um because at the end of the day, the only thing that really matters is how it sounds, and that introduces a human element of perception. Um, you know, all the technical measures in the world can't tell you. Or guarantee you that something you've designed is going to sound good. So listening and uh, critiquing is very much a part of a of a loop that you go through. So you listen, you find something you don't like, and then you apply your technical knowledge to figure out how to how to make it sound better.
2: Do you do a uh, a lot of um, full system listen tests at Fulcrum?
0: Full system? By by full system, you mean like an entire venue? Yeah. Yeah, we, um, maybe more than than, uh, larger companies, we, and when I say we, the the guys who work in engineering with me, um, we do quite a bit of field work where we go out, particularly when there's a new product that hasn't been used in the field before. We like to be on hand when it's used the first time and, and, you know, learn, you know, where the bones are buried and what the characteristics of that that speaker is. Uh, Well, Sometimes to see if we want to improve it, but also just to know the best way to sell it. You know what it's good at. You know, you know you can tell somebody it's good at this, and you, you know they won't uh, decide you're lying to them. So uh, we do quite a bit of work in the field, and in some cases, just to ensure that you know that the uh, the field tuning is done right. Uh, the environment where a loudspeaker is placed has a very powerful effect on the sound of the speaker. So you can put a speaker on a speaker stand and tweak it up until it sounds perfect, but as soon as you put that two feet from a wall up in the corner next to the ceiling, everything's changed, and it, it, you need to make on-site measurements and uh, equalization changes in order to mitigate the adverse effects of the of the reflect, you know, nearby reflections and sometimes the overall reverberation. So there's a there's a lot of uh, aesthetic decision-making in the field when these things are installed.
1: Yeah. I imagine the, the environment of a ginormous inside of a church, which echoes a lot versus like a stadium would be two completely different kinds of, of set
0: Oh, very different. Um, and then sometimes in surprising ways, uh, churches are very reverberant, but it's, it's usually a very pleasant reverberation so you know a choir where you're not actually you don't care if you can pick out the consonants it's just ah that's fine but then when you when you need to understand what the preacher is saying then intelligibility becomes really critical in churches and that's all about getting the sound directly to the people while putting as little sound as possible onto reflective surfaces like the walls and ceiling and and back walls and floors and so it's 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 a, a very uh, engineering-heavy process of, de- of figuring out where to, to position the speakers and where to point them. And that's where we get into the, the detailed measurements of the speakers, where we have high-resolution um, data defining what the radiation pattern of each speaker is. In a, in a stadium, it's, you would think that in an open-air stadium that it's, it's a lot easier because there's no reverb. And in fact, stadiums are very reverberate. Um, the air overhead is not as uh, transparent as it looks because the temperature inside the stadium is very different than the temperature above the stadium. And so you get reflections off that uh, that uh, thermal gradient. Um, even just bouncing back and forth from uh, amongst the stands and bouncing off the windows of the press box, all of those things are, uh, are very strong um, reflective and reverberant sources and they're much more damaging than it is in typical venues because when you get a reflection off a press box from a from a speaker that's in a scoreboard you get a reflection off the press box that arrives in the far grandstand it could be coming in almost a half second late and that means a half second is like three words when i just said like three words that was about a half a second so when you take that that and if you put a half-second delay on me and play them both the same level. You wouldn't understand a single word I said. So it's, an, it's a whole different set of challenges.
2: Yeah, I would, I would think it's, it's incredibly difficult. Um, I was actually at a Denver Broncos game uh, a few weeks ago, and uh, I was on third deck. And I was remarking to my buddy there about how good the sound is actually, just because it didn't, it there wasn't that that awful reverberation that you get at a high school football game. That's a, and, that's uh,
0: the uh, the benefit of the upper deck is that nothing comes back from behind you. When
2: right. you're in the
0: lower deck, it goes up underneath the the upper deck and then comes comes burbling back out. On the upper deck, it just sails away into the neighborhood. Uh, the The downside of being in the upper deck is that. If you're at the like in the front row of the upper deck, there's no floor in front of you. So whereas sound normally hits the floor you're standing on, and the low frequencies reinforce at your ear, the direct sound to your ear, and then what's coming off the floor is less than a quarter wavelength late, so you get 6 db more low frequency energy here. You know it's 6 db bassier because of the floor you're standing on. But when you're standing at the front lip of an upper deck, there's no floor. And so it gets very thin. So you don't get to hear bass when you're in the upper deck, but you can understand everything very, very clearly.
2: Well, well there you go. Hot tips from uh, David when you're picking your <laughs> uh, season tickets. <laughs> yeah, <that's right. laughs> if you care about audio, that is. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> you don't want to stand on the field either because grass is really unevenly absorptive. D-
2: does, it, does it scatter it scatter? It sounds very
0: dull and muffled when you're on the field because you're not getting any high frequencies off the, off the floor.
2: Well, then just in general, where's the best place to sit in the bowl then? Where the yeah, sound the, guy is the, at.
0: In the control room where the sound guy is at. Yes, you got it. Because <laughs> he's, he's, he, when you're mixing sound in a stadium, you can't actually hear what's going on out in the stadium. They close the windows and they have a pair of studio monitors that they listen to the uh, you know to the television feed or the or the, uh, the PA feed.
2: Right.
1: That, that was the tip that one um, of my friends gave when I – go to concerts and stuff is in an open air concert go where the sound guy's at oh yeah because that's where it's going to sound the best
0: yeah. yeah and if you're right on the center line then it's it's also going to be the basiest because your left stack and right stack are exactly in time on the on the center line right between them which is typically where the sound guy stands <laughs> <laughs>
2: Well, cool. Um, I, I would like to move on to uh, some of the technology that's available on your website, and and first of all, I got to mention that from the website, I, I got I love it because it feels very, it's both marketing and engineering. I can I can tell you have a section of the website that's dedicated to the technologies uh, in within your products. And they're, they're actual like descriptions of the technologies. And I love that because it's, it's, like I said, it's both marketing where someone can go and say, oh, there's a lot of technology behind this. But a guy like me can go and read and be like, oh, this is pretty cool. Uh, and in particular, I wanted to uh, kind of ask you some questions about the passive cardioid technology, which mm-hmm. uh, let's just start with what is it?
0: Well, <clears throat> uh, cardioid um, refers to the heart-shaped uh, radiation
1: pattern. So we refer to it as the butt pattern. Yeah, it's
0: it's more of a
1: it's more of a female butt
0: than a male butt. So, you know, that's 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 why it's so much fun to create these patterns. Um, so, uh, uh, loudspeakers normally um, get increasingly directive with frequency. So, you know, when a professional loudspeaker will as as the, the, uh, call it the beam width, is is narrowing uh, as we go up in frequency. At a certain point, let's say it's a 60 by 45 degree uh, loudspeaker. When it gets to 60 degrees, we want it to stop at 60 and hold 60 all the way up to, you know, 12, 16 kilohertz. But below 500, uh, there's, there's no way that to do that with normal-sized loudspeakers, because the hold say six-degree pattern at uh, at 100 hertz would require something maybe 12 feet wide.
2: So like so, Back to the Future style. Speakers. I was about to say yeah, <laughs> yeah, even
0: bigger. <laughs> so what happens is that the patterns get wider and and below 200 hertz it's essentially omnidirectional, and uh, so that's where cardioids come in. You you have speakers, for instance, at the uh, at the left and right front of the stage, and low frequencies are coming off the back of that speaker. So you always have all this low frequency energy on stage that's getting into microphones and muddying up the mix, and, and uh, especially muddying up monitor mixes. And so the ability to reduce the amount of low frequencies going backwards um, is very important. That's just one example of, of many. Um, as you go out in the audience, there's quite often a, uh, uh, what we call delay fills where there's small speakers out in the audience pointed away from the stage, and the uh, the feed to those speakers is delayed by a time equivalent to the propagation time from the main speakers to the delay speakers. And so they actually reinforce the delay speakers in the same time. But if you happen to be standing forward of the delay speaker, meaning closer to the mains, you're getting low frequencies off the back of the delay speakers that is coming in that much late twice. so if it's 20 feet behind you it's coming in 40 feet late and that can be very uh, very disturbing. So there's another case where you know cardioid uh, pattern really helps keep it clean um, in that region just ahead of the uh, delay speaker. And you know there are many more examples of, of where the cardioid pattern is, is helpful. So traditionally the way people have have created a cardioid pattern, is by using two separate sources, sometimes in one box, but quite often just two separate subwoofers. And if you put them, uh, if you space them by a given distance, and then you invert uh, the, the, the rear speaker, then on a, on a center line between the two, meaning going left and right, those two speakers are going to cancel. So you have no output on that. Center line that that but you've got a negative output behind and a positive output in front. That's called a figure eight pattern. It's not particularly useful. If you then delay the rear speaker by an amount equivalent to the spacing between the speakers, then what happens is that the that null which was left and right goes around behind. Now you have a null in the back, and you have some some uh, constructive interference in the front. So you're getting a little more more output from the two speakers. In the front, and you're getting cancellation in the rear. Of course, the the uh, the problem with that is that you need to use twice as many speakers. You have to have twice as many amplifier channels. You have to have twice as many uh, DSP channels. So there's a you know that's basically doubled the cost of uh, producing those low frequencies. So with the passive cardioid approach, that delay in the back source well first off there's only one source but there's a port in the back of the cabinet that's far enough back to create a cardioid effect but that output from that port is delayed by an acoustical circuit you know a a network of of, uh, volumes and tubes that act like acoustical masses so what you create is a low pass filter and it turns out that a low pass, the phase response of a low pass filter is identical to the phase response of a pure delay up to the, uh, to the cutoff frequency of the filter. Then it diverges, but it doesn't matter because it's, it's above cutoff. So by very carefully designing this acoustical cir- circuit, you can create a cardioid pattern passively with a single transducer. And a, a slightly more uh, elaborate uh, enclosure.
2: So the enclosure basically breathes behind the the loudspeaker itself.
0: Yeah, if you're you're used to seeing a a, a ported loudspeaker where there are two tubes coming out the the front, the, the baffle that the woofer is mounted in. Well, in the case of a passive cardioid, that that box is deeper, so that you know, so the back is far enough behind, and the the port tubes instead of coming out the front are coming out the back. And the output from those port tubes is appropriately delayed and low-pass filtered, so that uh, so that it produces, you know, typically around 10 dB of attenuation in the back.
2: So, so when it comes to the passive cardioid design, if we're just talking about effectively the phase response of a low-pass filter, doesn't that mean that it's only a, a true cardioid pattern at a single frequency, and the the pattern changes? As the frequency uh, increases,
0: well, if you yeah, it's there's there's a, a lot of uh, there's a lot of de- degrees of freedom in a passive cardioid, whereas in a typical ported loudspeaker, you've got a volume and you've got a well, you've got a uh, tuning frequency, and you can change the size of the ports. If you make them bigger and make them longer, you may not you may still have the same tuning frequency, so it doesn't affect the result. Um, in a passive cardioid, there's I think the last time I counted there are nine variables that you can play with, and you can play one against you can you can adjust the Q of the low pass filter, you can adjust the the physical location of, of where the uh, the ports exit, um, which interacts with the shape of the cabinet, the the way it diffracts around the cabinet, <clears throat> and if you do all of that uh, very carefully, you can you can come up with something that is actually more where the, the response curves as you go off axis uh, become gradually more attenuated but those curves are almost parallel as you as you head around to the back of the of the speaker whereas a active cardioid uh, is not even as as consistent now if you have you know if you have days you can you can tweak to your heart's content with with uh, digital signal processors and try and make the active cardioid uh, work the way you would really like it to. Um, but uh, that's essentially what we've done in the, in the passive domain. It's a, it's a lot more involved than just designing a ported speaker, but it's, it's you know design phase, so you only do it once, and once you have it figured out, it's not that expensive, it's not much more expensive to manufacture a passive cardioid than it is to manufacture a conventional ported loudspeaker. So all of the effort is in the design phase. It doesn't really add much cost to the manufacturing phase.
1: So I have a question about that is, so we were talking earlier about how venues can change, how the sound sound uh, acts. Is that the same thing in the passive, uh, this passive solution for uh, cardioid.
0: It's certainly, yeah, the venues certainly affect the sound of the uh, subwoofers in general one of the benefits of a passive car- of a cardioid is that it is less sensitive to the characteristics of the venue. I mean, typically loud uh, subwoofers are backed up to a wall and you have the uh, energy wrapping around going backwards, bouncing off the wall and combining in the front. And, uh, there, There is no way that can combine light and do anything useful. It's always going to be destructive or harmful to the to the net result. When you have a Um, a cardioid backed up to a wall there is nothing coming straight up because there's a null back there. The net result when you when you put a cardioid up against a wall is the same as if you put two cardioids back to back and mathematically the way that works out is you get a, a, a pure omnidirectional pattern. So in the case of the wall of course there's nothing going through the wall. What you have is a hemispherical pattern so you've, whereas without the cardioid characteristic, you have like a cloverleaf pattern in the front. There are nulls in certain directions. And those nulls move with frequency. So for instance, at 60 hertz, you might have a null that's, that's uh, 60 degrees off axis. And by the time you get to 120 hertz, it's 30 degrees off axis. So you, uh, no matter where you are, you have a nice big notch in the response that, uh, that really saps, especially the uh, impact of a kick drum.
1: I was about to say actually just different people talking have different frequencies and some people could like, let's say in the, the church example, it's like if someone's speaking and only certain people can hear that person talk and then someone else comes up and it's, you know, Oh, because it's, it sounds
0: different in different places. Yeah. Yeah. The, the thing about, about the speech range though, is that, um, most of us live on the floor in rooms. And so, Every person we ever listen to has his voice reflecting off the floor, reflecting off of walls, and usually reflecting off the ceiling. And the human ear-brain mechanism is extraordinarily adapted to being able to extract information from that situation. If you've ever tried to listen to somebody by listening to the recording of a mic in the room, and you say, I can't understand a word he's saying, but I was sitting right there where the mic was and I had no problem understanding him. In the environment, you can use spatial cues and there's a lot more information to process and we're, we're just extraordinarily adapted to that. Now the same thing happens with uh, interference. If you put a loudspeaker near a wall, that's very similar to a person standing near a wall. And so we're, we're good at ignoring the deleterious effect of that, of that wall. That doesn't hold down to low frequencies because there's no, like, language information in low frequencies. There's just, uh, you know, lizard brain information. Thump, thump, <laughs> and uh, you bring in the walls, and now the thump isn't as thumpy, and so you're not as afraid when it, when the when the T-Rex mixes thumpy noises or whatever. Um, it's a different, you know, hearing is a different function at 100 hertz than it is at 1,000 hertz. Gotcha. Gotcha. Even, even, you know, evolutionary terms.
2: You know, uh, out of curiosity, what is the mechanism that causes higher frequencies to be more focused and lower frequencies to be more omnidirectional?
0: Uh, generally that would be diffraction. Um, just the way like when light hits a slit, it diffracts through in a, in a wide beam. But if it's, if it's, uh, if it's, playing through, a, or if the light is shining through a, a wide slot, it goes through as a, as a focused beam. And the same thing happens in audio. That The, the larger the source, the, uh, the, the tighter the beam width that that source produces. Uh, ironically enough, um, that theory, the, diff, the theory of diffraction of, of uh, propagating waves, that was developed by Lord Rayleigh uh in the 1860s and when he got done solving all the problems of audio diffraction he was looking for something else to do so he went over and and uh, solved all of the same equations for light but
2: <laughs> he just he first. just got bored right and said he just listen. got bored
0: well yeah <laughs> he didn't he didn't even get paid he was he was a lord right he didn't have anything to do so he just uh, he did science as a hobby and I had to invent a new calculus in order to solve the, the equations of diffraction.
1: Man, I want to be a Lord. <laughs>
0: <laughs> my, dog's the, my dog is named after Lord Rayleigh. Oh, nice. Lord uh, Rayleigh, is, 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 his, uh, his real name is John William Strutt. And so my, do, my dog's uh, AKC name is, is, uh, is uh, Gunness' Lord Rayleigh, and his call name is Jack. Is short for John William Strutt.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I like how there's layers to this dog name.
0: Yeah, it's, it's, it's an inside joke. My wife and I are the only people who w- would ever have known it until now.
2: Oh, well, now, now a few thousand people are going to know it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, and, and on top of the, the uh, so with this passive cardio technology, you actually have a patent on this, right? Is that is that under your name?
0: Yes. It's a... Uh, uh, it's been about a year, I guess, now. Um, I don't know what to say about it other than that there's a, there's a patent there, which is kind of cool. Um, a lot of people, this this was not an idea that I hatched, like, I, that I was the first person to think of. People have been trying to make passive um, cardioids for, well, at least since 72 is the first uh, patent application that I'm aware of. Um, i going to blank his name off now, but... Uh, I almost had it. Anyway, he was an Altec Lansing engineer back in '72, uh, filed the first patent, but they never managed to actually make it work. So there was never a product issued under that patent. Um, several other people have have uh, have been awarded patents uh, without creating any products, um, and uh, a large part of it is because of it was because of limitations of materials. So one of the reasons we're able to make this work now is because of some material technologies that actually became available because of cell phones. The microphones and cell phones um, the performance of those microphones is dependent on acoustical resistance of materials. And so all of a sudden now we can actually buy a material with where the acoustical resistance is a QC parameter whereas in the past you could find a piece of material that works, and then you go to buy another piece of material and it doesn't work anymore because it's it's not consistent from batch to batch.
1: So the, yeah, that material actually has a specification and tolerance for... For
0: acoustical resistance, yeah.
1: Gotcha.
2: Yeah, go figure. hmm So another uh, a, a topic that was on your technology page is actually called building a better coax, which kind of feels like a social media post for engineers or for nerds (laughs) and uh and and, uh there's a quote on the page that says uh herman j fanger invented the coaxial speaker in 1928. 80 years later fulcrum acoustic reinvented the coaxial system design and that's a little bit of a wanky quote but first of all can you that's
0: that's about as marketing ease as we get on our website i think (laughs)
2: Um, so, so can, can you, uh, can you uh, fill us in on what is a uh, coaxial speaker?
0: Uh, well, the idea is, is that um, the low-frequency device and the high-frequency device are on the same axis. So as you go off to the right and left, it's, they're symmetrical. And if you go up and down, they're symmetrical. So in a typical uh, speaker configuration where you have a woofer with a, with a high-frequency driver above it, they're spaced. And so when you, go, when you go down from on-axis, the high-frequency device is late in arriving. And as you go above-axis, the high-frequency driver is early arriving. And so you, you have a different response going up versus going down. And uh, so you can't create a consistent. And so what it does is it puts a notch in the response somewhere at crossover frequency. Whereas with a coax, if you solve it anywhere, it works everywhere. And by anywhere, I mean if you if, if you solve it going to the right, it also works to the left. And in fact, it's going to be very similar, up you know, upward and downward. So, you can get a much more consistent uh, response spatially with a coax, and that has very important uh, benefits to how speakers sound. Um, these, the, if you're standing somewhere in front of the loudspeaker the some some of the output is going sideways and coming off a wall or reflecting off the floor, reflecting off the ceiling. These late arrivals that mechanism I was talking about that humans are so good at ignoring late arrivals that create interference patterns. Um, we're only really good at that if the arrivals are all very similar in spectrum and, and, uh, and uh, Transient character. So, the s- more similar those off axis responses are to the axial response, the better it sounds because the more effective we are at ignoring those reflections from the room. So, coaxes are just easier to listen to because you're not doing as much uh, subconscious work in your brain to try and decode what you're getting from the sound field. So, uh, you know, most people's reactions just wow this is so easy to listen to I, I don't get tired it's a big deal in uh, in uh, studios where people sit in front of speakers listening for 8-12 hours at a time
1: um, I, I was actually about to say is um, I do a lot of automotive work in coaxial speakers I, I, I actually didn't know what they were I googled the picture I'm like oh those are the kind of speakers that you actually yeah. install in audio, uh, auto, um, automotive applications yeah, in well, you cone. can't get
0: off access for your, for your car speaker but that, that brings up the, the second um, big advantage of coaxes, and that's simply that they're more compact. Okay. A 12-inch speaker and a 12-inch horn, you need at least 24 inches of baffle, but with a 12-inch coax, you only you know need 13 inches of baffle to. them. So you can make it. They're you know almost universally nowadays used in floor monitors, so the so that the uh, floor monitors can be very compact, and you know our. The core of our line is a single coaxial speaker with a, a vertical trapezoid, so that it can it can uh, uh, go tight up against the ceiling and, and really be kind of invisible. So a lot of it, especially in churches and, and uh, restaurants and that kind of a application, um, people want the speakers to disappear, and a coax is, you know, twice as it's half as visible as a uh, displaced driver uh, sort of speaker. So what we did that was um, different than what people have been doing since 1928 is, A, we do multiple uh, coverage patterns. So we have a 90 by 45, a 60 by 45, 75 by 75, 120 by 60, 90 by 60, 100 by 100, all different patterns so that are all designed to sound as identical as possible so that you can combine different patterns in a room and cover the different areas of the room with, with a pattern, you know, specifically uh, uh, suited to that, you know, that place in the room. Um, that's what people have been doing with displaced drivers for decades. Uh, we just we just took that into uh, coax land and and made uh, pattern control drivers. And the reason we're able to make that work is because of the uh, involvement of DSP in professional loudspeakers now. In the old days, you had to try and try and make the speaker flat and sound good using a handful of passive components. The cost adds up quickly, so you, you've got, you know, a budget of I can only use eight components, and I have to try and make this thing as flat as possible. And uh, some patterns are a lot easier to make sound good than others. And so what had, you know, what people had in the past is they they managed to make one coax work okay, but if they tried to do a different pattern with it, they just they they couldn't solve the problem. So when we started Fulcrum, we had the luxury of starting at a time when any professional-level loudspeaker at a price point, meaning it was built in Massachusetts, um, had a, a capable DSP in the installation. So we didn't make any attempt to make the speakers naturally flat or passively flat. Every speaker we make has to have DSP. And because of that, we could design a crossover that produced uh, off-axis curves that are parallel to the on-axis response, but if we tried to make it flat, we couldn't. We couldn't get the directional behavior right. So we just said we're not going to worry about flat. We're just going to get the directional behavior right, and we're going to flatten it with the DSP. And because of the, you know, the, there's almost no limit to what you can do with DSP. So we could make it sound much better. Than you could ever make a passively crossed-over flat speaker sound.
2: Yeah, because you could just counteract the curve in the DSP, right?
0: Yeah, and also we—I mean—we don't the with horn, especially with horn loads and with, with woofers naturally rise in response as you go up in frequency. And uh, compression drivers on on horns are much more sensitive than woofers, so the shape of the response curve is a, a great big haystack where it's it's 10db hotter from say 800 to four kilohertz than it is at 200 Hertz or 10 kilohertz and by just letting it stay you know be that loud in that range almost no power is is consumed making the two to four kilohertz and that means that overall you get more output per watt of amplifier power
2: so is the uh, is the design I guess what's going through my head right now is uh, the you've you, you design the loudspeaker such that the on-axis and off-axis is great and then you just basically test and validate and listen to it with a uh with a with a microphone and then create the curve against that what you've tested
0: well there's there's more magic to it
2: than that <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah i guess i used the word just a few times there
0: yeah just just leave out just and then <laughs> and then that's probably an accurate statement um the the trick is to get it to sound better everywhere. So you have a speaker that you know is is relatively consistent, meaning the off-axis curves are parallel. But if you just put a microphone on axis and, and make, I mean you can just make it perfectly flat on axis. But some places in the pattern it's actually gonna sound worse. So the the magic comes in in figuring out how much you can how much better you can make it everywhere without making it perfect anywhere because this is this is one of the differences between a professional loudspeaker and a home hi-fi speaker is that for a home hi-fi there's one person sitting in a chair you know with his head in a clamp and the (laughs) the speakers need to sound perfect at that point in space
1: but most most home hi fi people are I, I yeah, I know a couple of people that are like that. They have their head clamps under their chair. <laughs> they have a specific spot they have to sit. Yeah. Yes. Oh yeah, absolutely. For sure. That's For the sure. sweet
0: spot. But you see, um, if you make a, if you take a professional loudspeaker, you make it perfect right on axis, that's only gonna satisfy one person. Right? The axial response is pointed at one guy. The guy with a smile on his face. <laughs> if you go off-axis, say 10 degrees, now you're going 10 degrees all the way around that. Well, you take that, that cone, you know, it's subscribed by, by 10 degrees, that's pointing at, you know, 20 or 30 people or something, depending how far away they are. And if you go out by the pattern edge, you might be catching 80 people. So, in reality, the actual response is, is you know, not very productive. want What you want to do is make as much of the pattern sound good as possible, so that the largest percentage possible of the audience is getting good sound. So very different focus than than making a a, uh, a home hi-fi speaker or even a studio monitor. And uh, right, right, and
2: a- and I can I can only imagine that there's a lot of compromises that go along with that. Not major compromises, but you know, this one person might not get the best uh, sound, but your 40% more are going to be better. So there's a compromiser.
1: I was gonna say he's he paid the thirty dollar nosebleed ticket. It's
0: similar. To, you use the same process that you use when you're when you're tuning a loudspeaker in situ, which is basically you walk around and listen to it, and you find the worst spot in the room. And you you go to your uh, to your DSP, and you you well you put a microphone there to find out exactly like okay I hear something in the upper mids. Is that two kilohertz or is that you know twenty five hundred hertz? You you. You figure out exactly where it is you you put an eq in that mitigates it for that spot in the room, and then you walk around is it and now it's not the worst spot in the room now a different spot and you mitigate that spot uh the The trick is knowing when to stop
2: yeah, it sounds like a chasing your tail issue
0: yeah, well, you get to a point where okay, so there's nothing is is radically worse than anything else, so th- we're done here this is as, <laughs> this is as good as this can be.
1: you get to the point where the entire spectrum is a notch.
0: <laughs> what you sometimes see with people who don't know when to stop is that they well you know a a, a cut eq the a bell bell curve that's a kind of a notch eq so they spent way too much time tuning and what they did is they put in so many notch eqs that now what they have is just they've they've ended up shelving the whole thing down they've just got notch eqs on top of notch eqs i know that doesn't actually help you, you don't want to use more than three or four eqs there's a there's a elaborate uh, um, philosophy about how to EQ speakers in situ and how to EQ speakers uh, you know at design time in a, in a laboratory um, so you know if you want to get interested in that go take a, a, a class in uh, smart uh, by rational acoustics smart is the is the program that most people use for tuning speakers in situ real-time real uh, um, frequency response measurements.
2: Very cool. So uh, one other thing, this is a little bit of a departure, but I'd like to touch on this real quick. Um, and it's the fact that, uh, I, I, correct me if I'm wrong here, but uh, wood is one of the materials that you use in your manufacturing process. Is that correct?
0: Absolutely. And whenever I can get away with it.
2: <laughs> well so that's something that we we actually haven't talked a lot about or we haven't had a lot of guests on that uh wood is a, pr- a primary manufacturing material yeah it's probably
0: surprising to people that that you know there's certainly there must be something better that you can make a, a speaker enclosure out of but but there really isn't a, and but it's not just wood i mean yeah you, you make a make it out of pine wood or something like that That's not going to work very well it's a very specific wood this is this is uh phenolic-bonded uh, Baltic birch plywood. Um, so unlike the plywood you get from a, from the lumber yard, uh, like three-quarter-inch plywood has typically seven plies, and uh, in Baltic birch it would be more like 13 plies. Um, so they're much thinner, uh, there are no voids, and it's, uh, it's bonded with phenolic, which is essentially a plastic. So Baltic birch is extremely rigid, extremely light, um, extremely hard, and it has a very neutral uh, vibration character. When you knock on wood, it just—it's a very neutral dull thud. Whereas if, if you knock on something like plastic, you can definitely recognize that it's plastic you're you're uh, you're rapping on. And when that plastic vibrates, it gives gives a sound of a plasticky character for lack of a better adjective Um,
1: and and this sounds a lot like um what we call like an engineered uh wood where it's 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 it's, there's a specification for how it's built
0: yes absolutely
1: yeah they 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 do the same thing when they build um houses and stuff that the 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 cross beams are engineered materials now
0: yeah the i forget what they call them The something lamb where it's 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 basically this kind of plywood uh glued up face to face to make a to make a beam Mm um well and then you know if you live in in uh, denmark you have to make all your furniture out of it too um so this baltic birch is extremely fine-grained so you can you can cut very Find details in it, and it holds the details. Um, when you have a finished speaker cabinet and you and you uh, you know you hit it with a hammer, it doesn't leave a mark. It's it's very impact resistant, and because it's just it's painted with water-based paint. When you drag a floor monitor around on a stage and scratch it up, or or you you know it's it's bouncing around on a truck, what a lot of sound companies do is they don't. They don't baby their speakers. They just, when they come back from a tour, they repaint every speaker that comes off the truck. So it's really easy to maintain. Unlike like plastics and even uh, cheaper materials that are coated with like the the bedliner kind of uh, rugged plastic. That stuff is really rugged, but it's not impermeable. And if you and if you chip it, you can't repair it because you have to have a special machine to apply it so the accessibility of uh, painted baltic birch is part of the attraction that you know if you if you scratch it's no big deal i mean you can throw some plastic wood in it if you want or some bondo typically um but you just hit it with a spray can and nobody in the audience will ever see it
1: i was i was thinking about um like mdf has a vinyl coating usually and that's the same thing is the moment that it's really robust until that coating gets damaged and then the moment any moisture gets near it it's oh. gone. That game oh, yeah. <laughs> well,
0: yeah, no you can't you know MDF can never be a professional thing because it just you get into humid weather and it swells up and and then the the vinyl pops and just like your guitar cabinet behind you there the tolex is pretty tough but if you jab it with something you hit it on a door jam or something you rip it now you got to try and glue it back down and, and pretend like it didn't happen.
2: Yeah, actually, uh, so I I built this cab out of thirteen ply Baltic birch. Oh uh, yeah, and mm-hmm. uh, yeah, and that stuff cuts like a dream, and uh, it's voidless. The stuff that I purchased, yeah, uh, and it which was, is really important
0: because if there are voids, then the the, uh, the adjacent ply will buzz. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it doesn't. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have any of those uh, footballs in it. The little football yeah. cuts. <laughs>
0: Well, the thing is with with normal plywood, like AC plywood or something, they'll put footballs on the A side, but there can be holes on the inner plies that really should have footballs there, but they don't put footballs on the inside. So you have voids on the inside of the plywood. And so then you've got a buzz and you have no idea where it's coming from because it's it's hidden inside the, the plywood. So you need plywood that's absolutely solid wood all the way through.
2: Hmm. Yeah, it... it, it... This stuff wasn't wasn't cheap, especially in the quantities that I was looking at, but uh, but it certainly does the job pretty well. Mm-hmm.
0: So when we when we uh, don't use Baltic birch, the primary well for us right now, the only time we don't use Baltic birch is when it's a uh, weatherproof cabinet. So if it's going to be outside in the stadium, um, traditionally people would still build the cabinet out of Baltic birch and then they would chop fiberglass onto it. It's a gun that like, shoots little, little uh, bits of uh, fiberglass mixed with resin, and then you roll it out. And, and uh, you know a cabinet that, that weighs 80 pounds turns into a 180-pound cabinet when you put 100 pounds of fiberglass on it. So we've finally moved beyond that, and we use um, fiberglass-reinforced uh, polyurethane foam panels, which are actually, I think, about 15% lighter than Baltic Birch but not as rigid. But the, you know, the good news is that it doesn't know how to rot. It just, it can't. It's just polyurethane. So we, uh, unlike in the past where you just started out with the, with the same Baltic birch cabinet you would have made otherwise, add fiberglass to it, it just gets more rigid. There's a little more engineering involved in uh, the, we call it FRP, the FRP material, um, because we have to add bracing in order to overcome the the, the fact that it's not as rigid as Baltic birch, but it's much more dimensionally consistent, much more weatherproof and uh, and uh, and lighter.
2: You know, uh, one other quick question uh, about manufacturing and designing as an engineer with wood, but uh, are there any kind of considerations when it comes to tolerancing or specifying wood on an engineering drawing? It's just not very common
0: what is what is a uh, no it's 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 a living thing right Um, if you if you cut a piece of wood to say 60 inches in in the mid in midsummer especially in the you know northern part of the country where we are uh, it's always much more humid in midsummer than it is in January Uh, so if you actually cut a piece of wood to 60 inches in say July and then you come back and you measure it in the end of January it's going to be 3 16ths of an inch shorter because of it because it's dried out and shrunk you do the same thing in reverse cut it 60 inches in January it's gonna be 60 and 3 16 inches in uh, in July um, so there is the the uh, expanding and contracting aspect of the wood that you have to account for in in designing with it, especially when, you know, that was a big problem with outdoor speakers. Less of a problem indoors, but even indoors you know, uh, my skin always gets dried up in January and and in uh, July I'm sweaty all the time, so it's it's kind of the same with wood. Um, There's also the issue that, uh, you know, they aren't they aren't harvesting birch trees in, in Russia and Finland under controlled conditions. So they're, they're drying it out, and they, you know, they, they have instruments where they measure the, the moisture content. But then it goes in a ship for a month or two, and it goes to a warehouse. It comes on a truck. And none of these are moisture-controlled environments. So um, because the moisture content varies from batch to batch, the thickness also varies. So that's one of the challenges is that you have to use adhesives that can that can uh, put up with the expansion and contraction, and you have to use joinery that tolerates the variability in the uh, 12 millimeter plywood, maybe anywhere from 11.5 to 12.5. And so you have to have joinery that can adapt to, you know, that has, that is tolerant of those dimensional variations. That's, that's, uh, that's probably the, the, the primary rookie mistake that, 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 uh, amateurs make is just, you know, you you can't just cut a 12 millimeter dado and put a 12 millimeter millimeter piece of plywood in it. That's only going to fit half
2: the time. You're going to have a bad day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, awesome. Um, Parker, do you have anything, uh, you would
1: like to add in on that? I, I don't think so. Um, the I I haven't actually really thought about designing a cabinet out of like because I've built stuff out of wood before but never thought about like extra expanding and contractioning and and stuff like that um I think that's kind of uh you know if you're building one cabinet
0: you can kind of adapt like if it doesn't yeah. fit you can just sand off the panels. that's exactly it what fit. it is but if you're trying to build a run of a hundred of them and they have to be done by next Tuesday you don't have the luxury of, of hand fitting everyone, so you have to yes. you have to design for manufacturing tolerances.
1: Well, just like you you're probably building stuff in batches, so you're going to be cutting all of one piece at one time, and then say two weeks later, a cold front has moved through and completely, you know, changed everything all the environment. Yeah,
0: it Well, there's there is a a lag time. It takes a while for it to change. So we don't we don't uh, like. For instance, maybe it's the most efficient to cut 20 parts at a time and we only need eight today. We don't cut 12 extra parts and put them on a shelf because by the time we get around to using them, they're gonna be a different dimension. So we only cut the number of parts that we know we're going to use that week. Um, And we're able to do that because of uh, advances in manufacturing technology. We have what's called a nested based router, which is a CNC router with a five foot by 10 foot table, we can put a five foot by 10 foot sheet on there. And it's all obviously computer controlled. But whereas in the old days you would would cut plywood into rectangles and put them in templates and then cut parts out of those templates. Now we put a whole sheet on the table and we say, I want four of this part and six of this part and four of this part. And the computer figures out how to lay those out on the plywood to get the best yield. And so every time we run a program, it's the only time we ever run that particular program. It's calculated from scratch every time. So we can do any combination of things. We can cut two different products at the same time out of the same sheet of plywood if we want to. Um, and because of that, we're much more efficient than, than uh, professional loudspeaker companies used to be at short runs. Somebody wants to buy two of them, it's gonna cost more per unit than if we make eight of them but in the past it would have been twice as much now it's maybe ten percent more so we've we've designed our factory in order to be able to do short runs because of the amount of customization and uh and just because you know we have 80 products or so and uh you know some of those products we only do 30 a year some of them we do 800 a year but we have to be able to do all of them in order to fill all of the requirements for a given installation. You don't get away with just making the one that's the most profitable. You got to you got to make everything they need to do the job, and uh, you know you make some profit on the on the high volume ones and and break even on the little ones that you're doing just to get the get the other job. That's kind of the nature of the business.
1: So how you have it set up is to you you all have reduced y'all's NRE and set up time. For different products.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, we're very we're very flexible in terms of uh, you know scheduling products and and uh, and quantities. You know, in the in the old days, you would you would run twenty at a time, no matter what you had on order, because you had a you had a template that made twenty of a given part. And there's one per product. It's like, well, we got to make 20, 20 of them then. So we're going to make twenty sets, and we only need eight and so you're sitting on 12 for six months
1: yeah I, I got another question i guess it's um how important is the grain for this plywood
0: it, it it's not very important at all because each ply is perpendicular to the ones next to it so it's all alternates you know up and down left and right um and these the surface grain doesn't matter because we uh you know we everything gets stapled together and then we bond in the staple heads and round over the corners and surface sand everything and then it's primed painted um textured and uh so you know whatever grain is there is completely invisible by the time we're done
1: gotcha i just i'm just thinking like if the cnc robot decided hey i'm gonna put everything at 45 degrees because that's the most of the- optimal stacking for your parts it wasn't going to cause a problem
0: no it wouldn't make any wouldn't make any difference in fact there is a setting on the on the uh the cnc uh software you can tell it that i want it i want this part to always be aligned with the grain and then it won't rotate it but we know you know we've never used that because we don't care
2: (laughs) see what, what what's been going through my mind is if um if you did cut parts and for some reason they didn't fit, since it's wood, you can just have a note on the uh, on the drawing that just says "sand until fit," right? And then and then all your problems are covered.
0: <laughs> well, there there are, you know, occasionally uh, critical tolerances like where it's important from a strength point of view or for some other reason, um, where instead of just oversizing the dado and letting the glue fill the gap. We cut it line to line and you just have to, you have to sand it if it won't go in. <laughs> and we have a, you know, we have a, a, a special sander that's a 42 inch wide surface sander um, that we can, we can run them through if we need to. But, you know, that's, that's pretty rare. You know, that's part part of that is, is handle it when you're designing the cabinet. You design the cabinet specifically to avoid having to, to make uh, hand fittings like that. Because that, it's not only expensive, but it's also unpredictable. It's like I, I scheduled, you know, 12 hours of, of shop time to build this run of cabinets, and it took 15 because we're hand-fitting everything. That's a problem.
2: Well, fantastic. Thank you so much for uh, being our guest today. You're welcome. This was awesome, and I could for sure talk another two hours about all this stuff. <laughs>
0: Well, it's kind of it's kind of fun to do this because I often, you know, in the heat of battle, I forget how uh, how intriguing some of this stuff is. It's second nature after thirty five years of doing it.
1: <laughs> yeah. So, thank you so much, David, for mm-hmm. coming on to our podcast. Thank you. Um, would you like to sign us out?
0: Well, that was the MacroFab Engineering Podcast. I was your guest, David Gunnis,
1: and we're your hosts, Parker Dillman. and Stephen
2: Craig. Later, everyone. Take it easy.